It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival will be held on August 25th through the 27th. 2023 in Austin, Texas. Join other ethical true crime podcasters, victim advocates, and paranormal creators for a weekend full of panels, roundtables, and live shows. Purchase your early bird tickets now at truecrimepodcastfestival.com slash tickets. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. The concept of double jeopardy is one that is enshrined in the legal systems of countries all over the world. Obviously, there are caveats and variations between different countries, but the core meaning is the same. Very loosely, double jeopardy means that you cannot be repeatedly brought to trial for any charges you've previously been acquitted of. It makes sense in some ways. Ostensibly, having double jeopardy laws in place prevents accused persons from being harassed by the authorities and or those within the legal system. They can't just arrest someone and send them to trial as many times as they want until they get the conviction they desire. It should prevent false convictions and protect countless innocent people from being sent to jail. However, there are nuances to the laws. What if you know someone got away with murder? What if new evidence is unearthed that wasn't available before? What if there was misconduct by the police, corruption among the trial jury, or accusations of tampering with objects from the crime scene by the criminal labs? Laws have loopholes. They can be tweaked and circumvented. In today's episode, we are examining two cases where suspects were acquitted at trial, only to face retrial for the same crimes and ultimately end up behind bars decades after the initial act. Okay, on to the show. Fifteen-year-old Jacqueline Montgomery kept a diary, and what is known of the pages contained in that journal show that she didn't have the easiest life. The London teenager known by friends and family as Jackie would write about all manner of things that would cause stress even to grown adults. One entry detailed a boyfriend breaking up with her. Quote, Dave finished with me. I'll never know why. While another painfully addressed her parents' separation. My mom left today. Got a flat nearby. Dad was very cut up. Jackie remained living with her father, Robert Montgomery, in a flat in North London, England, when her mother left. 
She was close with her family, which included a sister, Kathy, among other siblings, and an aunt named Josie. Jackie has been described as courageous and bright, and it isn't difficult to see why. When Josie fled an abusive relationship with her children, Jackie went with her aunt to try to help them seek refuge in Manchester, a city much further north in England. Josie's partner had been seen abusing her during their relationship by several witnesses, beating, hitting, and punching her, and that was only what she suffered in public. Devastatingly, this trip was unsuccessful. Jackie again wrote in her diary that the housing people they went to for help in Manchester told us to get back to the smoke because they had 15,000 of their own to see to. They returned to London and contacted the police, who put them in touch with a duty welfare officer that arranged a hotel room for them in King's Cross. King's Cross wasn't as safe of a city and it was 163 miles away, and the accommodations weren't exactly five stars. As Jackie put it, it was a DOS hole, but it wasn't the home of an abuser, and they were thankful just to have a bed for both young women and Jackie's cousins. It should go without saying that Josie leaving the dangerous situation her partner put her and her children in was an act of immense bravery, and that 15-year-old Jackie showed a fierce bravery of her own for helping her aunt and her cousins and for standing up to the very same man who was assaulting Josie when he tried to force himself onto her. Josie's ex-partner, Dennis McGorry, at 27, was 13 years older than Jackie when he tried to kiss the teenager, then 14, as she sunbathed on a rooftop in 1974. Then again, when he later entered Josie's home drunk while Jackie was babysitting her cousins, put his hands up the teenager's skirt, and again tried to kiss her. Horrifyingly, he even joked to her sister Kathy that he wanted to sexually assault both Kathy and Jackie. Sadly then, it should come as no surprise to any of us that when 15-year-old Jackie Montgomery was found dead early in the morning of June 2nd, 1975, Dennis McGorry was the clear prime suspect. Jackie's father, Robert, was the one who found her body. He walked into the living room of his home at 119 Offord Road in London at around 2.15 a.m. and was met with a horrifying crime scene. Furniture was overturned, the phone was off the hook, and in the middle of it all lay his daughter. She had been stabbed to death and had multiple stab wounds, which a later examination would pinpoint as being through the heart, stomach, and liver. It is believed that she could have been alive for as long as 10 minutes before finally succumbing to her injuries. Police were able to determine that the phone had been disconnected off the hook since the previous day, which was June 1st, and that was likely when Jackie had been murdered. Tragically, they reasoned that the phone came off the hook as a teenager attempted to call for help. Before resorting to stabbing her, her killer had also attempted to strangle her with the cord of an iron, which was still wrapped around her neck when she was found. Possibly, he had also used the heated iron to inflict pain on her, as she had a burn on her leg. She had injuries to her face and her skirt and jumper were also pulled up, with her underwear discarded nearby. Clear signs that she had been sexually assaulted. A chunk of her hair had been pulled out in the struggle, and it lay near her underwear. Also present at the scene, though it is not clear exactly where, was her diary, 
which had a torn-out page. It didn't take the police long to start looking at Dennis McGorry. He had visited Jackie's neighbors shortly after she was believed to have been killed, and they described him as being shaken and excited. Police arrested him not long after Jackie's body was found and photographed several injuries he had at the time, including a bruised lip, bruised knuckles, and scratches along his wrist, arm, and neck. At the time of his arrest, his pockets contained a scrap of paper with an address written on it, which he believed was Josie's location. McGorry claimed that the injuries came from, quote, four geezers who had assaulted him, and curiously, they had also given him the address of his ex. He denied being at Jackie's home on the day of her murder, and he denied killing her. He also denied having any interest in Jackie, whether sexual or otherwise, despite his previous advances. Investigators later discovered that the address given for Josie was fake and that the page had been torn from Jackie Montgomery's diary. It isn't clear in what context the address was written, whether it was from a page of addresses and phone numbers or whether the police believed that Jackie had been forced to write it down for her killer before she died. Whatever the case, they truly believed they had enough evidence to put McGorry away for the assault and murder of the teenage girl. The story seemed obvious, with pieces of a puzzle falling neatly into place. McGorry was a violent man whose partner had left him because of his violence, and Josie had started a new life, including a sexual relationship with another man. Enraged, he went to the Montgomery home to try and find her, and when that failed, he took his anger out on the only person who was home, Jackie, whom he had already proven to have inappropriate feelings for. He then stole or extorted what he believed to be Josie's address, likely intending to continue his rampage with her next in the firing line. Two witnesses even reported that McGorry only days after Jackie's murder had said he was going to find Josie and give her stripes, which meant to beat her and cut her face off, although it's unclear whether this was unearthed in the initial investigation or someplace else. He was almost certainly only prevented from carrying out his intentions when he got arrested. However, all of the evidence was entirely circumstantial, and nothing definitively placed him at the scene of the crime. The diary page could have been obtained on a previous occasion, the injuries could have come from being assaulted himself, and everything else was hearsay, he said, she said. McGorry went to trial in 1976, just over a year after Jackie's murder. Once the prosecution finished presenting their case, the judge decided that it relied too heavily on circumstantial evidence and withdrew it from the jury. They were directed to find him not guilty, and they did, which meant he was acquitted. He would go without facing consequences for another 46 years, but eventually, just like everything, the reckoning would come. In 2003, English law underwent changes concerning double jeopardy, allowing for the possibility of retrials if new and compelling evidence came to light, and the director of public prosecutions deemed a retrial to be fair and in the public interest. Advancements in DNA technology played a pivotal role in providing the long-awaited new and compelling evidence. For 45 years, samples obtained from swabs taken from Jackie's genital area had been diligently preserved with the hope of one day apprehending her killer. 
As part of a cold case review, these samples underwent testing, which conclusively revealed, with a probability of a billion to one, that Dennis McGorry had engaged in sexual contact with Jacqueline Montgomery shortly before her untimely death. This breakthrough provided investigators with the necessary leverage to secure a retrial, exposing McGorry's deception. At the very least, it proved his sexual interest in Jackie, his presence at her residence around the time of her demise, and his deceitfulness towards the police and the jury regarding these matters. These indisputable facts, along with the history of violence towards Josie Montgomery and the testimony of Jackie's family and other witnesses, presented an overwhelmingly compelling narrative that could no longer be disregarded. The missing piece of the puzzle in the 1976 prosecution was the DNA evidence, and it finally secured their conviction in 2022. On December 19th, the jury at Huntington Crown Court took less than two hours to find Dennis McGorry guilty of the rape and murder of Jacqueline Montgomery. In January 2023, he received a life sentence, and considering his advanced age now at the time of this recording, which is 75, it's likely that he will spend the rest of his life behind bars. Acting Detective Superintendent Rebecca Reeves from the Metropolitan Police Specialist Casework Team characterized McGorry as a violent bully who arrogantly believed he had evaded justice but was now being held accountable. She emphasized the courage of the women who stood up to him in the 1970s and continued to testify and take action against him, despite the pain he inflicted and the terror he caused. However, this triumph is bittersweet for those who love Jackie. Kathy Montgomery, speaking to the press following McGorry's sentencing, revealed that she still buys Christmas and birthday cards for her sister nearly 50 years after her tragic passing. All the while, they were aware that McGorry had lived freely and happily, and it was heartbreaking that they were unable to alter that reality. Kathy expressed that the family experienced both relief and joy regarding the long-awaited verdict, stating, We have known he did it since day one. To this day, Jackie Montgomery's murder remains the oldest double jeopardy case in England to achieve justice. Jackie finally received justice due to a legal amendment that introduced greater flexibility. However, in our next case, it was the circumvention of the inflexible double jeopardy laws in the U.S. that ultimately brought closure to the victim's family, albeit with lingering doubts regarding the guilt of the accused. In May 1985, Katie and Gary Eastburn were devoted parents to three young girls, five-year-old Kara, three-year-old Aaron, and the youngest, Jana, who was 22 months old. They resided in Fayetteville, North Carolina, although Gary, a captain in the U.S. Air Force, frequently had temporary duty assignments that took him away from home. The couple had encountered each other in 1983 during a softball game, which served as a kind of matchmaking event for singles. It proved successful as Gary vividly described meeting Catherine, affectionately known as Katie, as a moment where somebody hit me between the eyes with a ball-peen hammer. I was madly in love with her. Two years later, they tied the knot and another three years passed before they welcomed their first child. A petite woman with short brown hair, Katie possessed an extraordinary amount of strength, resilience, and energy, which is often required of anyone who is raising a young family single-handedly while their husbands or partners are away on duty. 
The family was complimented by their English setter Dixie, a mischievous yet loving breed of gun dogs. So it's safe to say that Katie had her hands full, even when Gary was working close to home. Katie had always been an animal lover, particularly of horses. According to Gary, her fondness for horses was so profound that the opportunity to ride regularly in a new environment convinced her to agree to a significant relocation. Gary had received an assignment to serve as a liaison to the Royal Air Force, requiring him to live and work in England. He wanted to embark on this new journey with the family he cherished more than anything in the world. Initially hesitant to leave behind her friends and family in the U.S., especially her parents residing in Kansas, Katie eventually made up her mind. The young family decided to move to England and start a fresh chapter there. The prospect was both daunting and exciting, especially as they realized they would have to bid farewell to a particular member of their family. Katie and Gary had concerns about Dixie's ability to cope with the mandatory quarantine process involved in relocating a dog between the U.S. and the U.K. They knew it would be a stressful experience for her, requiring prolonged isolation with no understanding of what was happening. Thus, they faced one last difficult decision and placed an advertisement in a local newspaper, specifically targeted at the military community, called the Beeline Grab Brag. They sought a loving family willing to adopt Dixie. Gary was temporarily stationed at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama when they received an offer for Dixie. They had only asked for a $10 rehoming fee, hoping that they could find a good family to take in their beloved dog. On the evening of Tuesday, May 7, 1985, Katie opened the door to greet the man who had responded to the ad, a 27-year-old Army sergeant named Tim Hennis, stationed in the area. He and his wife already owned a Spitz, and they wanted to ensure the two dogs would get along before finalizing the adoption. So, that night, he took Dixie home with him to introduce the dogs. Reportedly, two days later, Katie called the man to check on how Dixie was doing, and everything seemed to be going well. It was a relief to know that Dixie was going to a good family and would have another dog for company. With Dixie's home now settled, the Eastburns could now focus entirely on their impending big move. Over the weekend, Gary called Katie as he always did to check in with her. However, the phone rang unanswered throughout that Saturday morning. Since this was before the era of mobile phones, he likely assumed that she was out running an errand and would get back to him once she was home. The following day on Sunday, which happened to be Mother's Day, the Eastburn's neighbor Bob Seafelt noticed something was wrong. Three newspapers were left uncollected in the driveway, despite the family's car remaining in the exact same spot for the past three days. Concerned and acting as a good neighbor, Bob went over and rang the doorbell. He rang it repeatedly, but there was no response, except for the sound of a crying baby. Bob and his wife immediately called the sheriff's office. The responding officer, hearing the baby's cries, decided to enter the home by cutting open a window screen. He quickly located baby Jana, retrieved her, and handed her back through the window to Bob, who was waiting outside. The officer had good reason for this approach instead of taking the baby through the front door or searching for Katie. A strong odor permeated the house, 
and upon exiting the bedroom, the officer confirmed his worst fears. The other occupants of the house were deceased. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The homicide unit was summoned to the horrifying scene. In the living room, Kara, the oldest daughter, lay under a Star Wars blanket. She had been stabbed in the chest and her throat had been cut. In the master bedroom, Katie and her younger daughter were found also with their throats cut. Aaron had also been bludgeoned, while the most brutal attack had been on the girl's mother. Katie's jeans and underwear were found on the floor, the latter having been forcibly removed. Ligature marks on her wrist indicated that she had been tied up. She had been raped and stabbed 15 times. Luminol testing revealed signs that someone had attempted to clean up the blood after the murders. Due to the last sighting of Katie by neighbors and the number of accumulated newspapers before Bob checked on them, investigators were able to determine that Katie, Aaron, and Kara had likely been deceased since the preceding Thursday, which was three days earlier. Fortunately, baby Jana was unharmed. Although she was dehydrated and slightly unwell, she could be safely reunited with her father. Gary, recalled from the base in Alabama, was distraught. He noticed that some items had been taken from the house, including Katie's ATM card, a slip of paper with the card's password, and cash from her purse. He also informed the police that she had found a man to adopt Dixie, but he had no knowledge of the man's identity. Fortunately, there was a witness near the crime scene when the incident occurred. Patrick Cohn, who was up early for his janitorial job, observed a tall white man leaving the house with a garbage bag around 3.30 a.m. He provided details about the man's attire and the car he entered, a white Chevy Chevette. Another witness came forward when investigators discovered that Katie's ATM card had been used at a specific machine after her death. The description she provided matched that given by Patrick Cohn. However, the police still didn't have a name, so they appealed to the public through a news broadcast on TV, asking for information about the man who had adopted an English setter from 367 Summerhill Road and drove a white Chevy Chevette. Tim Hennis, who had adopted Dixie and his wife Angela, saw the broadcast and immediately went to the law enforcement center to speak with the police. Hennis claimed that he had no idea until that moment that the murdered woman was the same woman he had visited that same week. Hennis underwent a seven-hour interview, during which he told the police that on the night of the murders, May 9th, he had driven Angela and their daughter to visit Angela's parents before returning home alone. He asserted that he didn't even know the name of the woman whose dog he had adopted. The interviewing officer found him arrogant and impatient, but cooperative. 
Hennis provided DNA samples of blood, saliva, and hair, and he also provided finger and handprints to be compared to any found evidence at the crime scene. Both Patrick Cohn and the woman from the ATM confirmed that the man they had seen was Tim Hennis. Moreover, an ex-girlfriend of Hennis's provided information to the police that seemed to contradict his alibi for that night. She claimed that he had shown up at her home after dropping off his wife and daughter, Christina, knowing that her husband was away on deployment in Germany. She also alleged that he told her his wife had left him. However, if his intentions were to rekindle their relationship, he did not achieve this desired outcome and left shortly after arriving. The police theorized that he might have left in frustration and headed to the home of another attractive young woman whose husband was away. That woman was Katie Eastburn. Perhaps most incriminating were Hennis's actions in the days before the discovery of the Eastburn girls' bodies. On Friday, just hours after the murders, he took a jacket matching the description provided by Patrick Cohn to the dry cleaners. On Saturday, Hennis's neighbors reported that he lit a fire in a barrel that burned for at least five hours. Just like in the case of Jackie Montgomery, this evidence was largely circumstantial. DNA testing and forensic science were not sufficiently developed to consistently be utilized by law enforcement, so despite Hennis providing numerous samples, nothing definitively linked him to the crime scene on the relevant night. However, when the police charged Tim Hennis with three counts of first-degree murder and one count of rape, the judge allowed the trial to proceed. It commenced in early 1986, and after 10 hours of deliberation, the jury found him guilty. On July 8th, he was sentenced to death for his crimes. Bizarrely, on the day of his sentencing, a letter was sent to both Hennis and the sheriff's office. It read, Dear Mr. Hennis, I did the crime. I murdered the Eastburns. Sorry you're doing the time. I'll be safely out of North Carolina when you read this. Thanks, Mr. X. The origins of this letter and whether it should be considered legitimate, a hoax, or a ploy to make Hennis appear innocent have never been determined. But this episode revolves around double jeopardy, so you probably know where this is headed. Hennis's lawyers promptly appealed to the Supreme Court of North Carolina, arguing that the graphic photos of the crime scene and the murdered children unduly influenced the jurors. Regardless of how compelling Hennis's innocence and defense may have been, witnessing such horrific scenes often leads the jury to seek someone to be held accountable for the tragedy, and the easiest target becomes the accused individual. The Supreme Court agreed and granted Hennis a retrial after he had already spent two years on death row. By the time this trial took place, his lawyers had constructed an impenetrable defense through offense. They attacked the credibility of the witnesses, particularly Patrick Cohn, who had seen a man matching Hennis's description leaving the Eastburn home around the time of the murders. Cohn had committed several minor crimes prior to the retrial including obstructing an officer, public intoxication, and attempting to use a stolen ATM card. According to the defense team, this made him unreliable. They even went as far as questioning Cohn about the weather conditions on the night of the murders and brought in a meteorologist to contradict his testimony. 
Cohn claimed it had been a clear night, but records showed it had been cloudy and overcast. The credibility of the woman from the ATM was also challenged, as she had allegedly informed investigators that she didn't recall seeing anything before providing the description that matched tennis. Furthermore, a teenager who resided in the area appeared before the jury, stating that he frequently took nighttime walks in the neighborhood. This young man bore a striking resemblance to Hennis and could have easily been mistaken for the defendant. Additional information was presented to the jury, casting doubt on the thoroughness of the investigation. The Mr. X letters were read aloud. The contents of the barrel fire were examined and found to have no connection to the Eastburn home. And the footprints around the home were significantly smaller than Hennis's. Some evidence was discovered that did not match any of the Eastburns or Hennis, although this could be explained since the house was a rental property. Katie's husband, Gary, testified in court, revealing that they had received strange phone calls in the middle of the night, weeks before the murders, weeks before Hennis even knew Katie existed. When Katie answered the phone, the caller knew her name, where she lived, and made threatening remarks. The retrial jury acquitted Hennis on all four counts, resulting in his release from custody. According to an article in The New Yorker, some of the jurors even shook his hand. Hennis subsequently re-enlisted in the army and received a substantial amount of back pay, as well as a promotion. This process did yield some positive outcomes. A commission was formed to investigate potential wrongful convictions, and new standards were implemented to enhance the reliability of circumstantial evidence, such as witness testimony. However, Katie, Kara, and Aaron remained deceased, and nobody was being held accountable. It wasn't until 2010, 25 years after the murders, that someone would be held responsible. By this time, Hennis had retired from the army, financially stable and highly decorated, he and Angela had a son in addition to their daughter, Christina. Hennis had served as the scoutmaster for his son's Boy Scouts troop for a significant period. According to those that knew him, he was an outstanding member of the community and a positive influence as described by an assistant scoutmaster. Scott Wisenat, a journalist who covered the initial trials and wrote a book on the case, believed that Hennis's behavior following his acquittal alone was sufficient evidence to demonstrate his innocence in the crimes he was accused of. The breakthrough in the case once again came through advancements in DNA technology. In 2006, a cold case detective discovered two sperm samples collected from Katie Eastburn that had never been tested. The detective obtained the samples and submitted them to the State Bureau of Investigation for analysis. Although it took a year, the results finally arrived. The sperm found on Katie's body matched Tim Hennis with a certainty of 12,000 million to one. Gary Eastburn was informed of this new evidence and became emotional. He now had one last opportunity to seek justice for his wife and two eldest daughters. However, there was a problem. While the UK had already amended its double jeopardy laws three years earlier, the US had not taken similar action. Hennis had been acquitted of the murders of the Eastburn girls, and according to the Fifth Amendment, he could not be retried by the state for the same offense. Fortunately, Hennis's status as a member of the U.S. military becomes crucial. As stated by ABC News, 
the federal government is a separate sovereign authority from the individual states that compose the country. Consequently, under Army regulations, a member of the armed forces who had been acquitted by a civilian court could face a new trial through court-martial. A request was made to recall Hennis to active duty, and the Secretary of the Army approved it. As a result, Hennis was once again charged with three counts of murder, although the statute of limitations for rape had expired under the military's code, so that charge was not renewed. He received full pay and benefits upon his return, but this may not have been much of a boon considering he would once again face the death penalty. On March 17, 2010, the court-martial proceedings began. This process functions mostly the same as a civilian court, with some slight differences. Firstly, jurors are referred to as members and are selected from a pool of uniformed individuals at the same rank or higher than the accused. In order to secure a conviction, at least 10 out of the 14 members would have to agree on Hennessy's guilt. To impose the death penalty, the decision would have to be unanimous. The defense, which had been successful in the retrial 21 years prior, faltered under the weight of the new DNA evidence. The shoe prints, the strange calls, and the Mr. X letters all paled in comparison to the discovery of Hennessy's semen inside the murder victim. The defense attempted to question this evidence as well, demanding information about the chain of custody of the swabs containing his DNA. They also revealed that the evidence custodian between 1993 and 1994 had been convicted of stealing guns from the evidence room, raising doubts about potential tampering. However, as this occurred years before the murders of the Eastburn girls, it was deemed a stretch. The defense's final desperate attempt was to claim that, contrary to prior testimony, Tim Hennis and Katie Eastburn had engaged in consensual sex in the days leading up to her murder, suggesting that the crime was committed by a different individual. They argued that the DNA evidence could support an argument of adultery. However, the medical examiner had already refuted this claim, stating that the quantity of DNA had been deposited shortly before her death, not days before. Three weeks later on April 8th, the members were sent to deliberate their findings. It took them only three hours to reach a unanimous verdict of guilty. Another week passed, and Hennis was sentenced to death. Although the U.S. military has not executed anyone since 1961, Hennis will spend the remainder of his life behind bars. However, this outcome has not been without controversy. Some, including Wisenat, believe that the military's decision to take over the case was fundamentally wrong and that this legal loophole violates the U.S. Constitution. There are also questions about why no information has been released regarding other DNA found in the home. However, as previously mentioned, since the house was a rental, it could have contained DNA from various previous occupants scattered throughout. Despite the verdict, there are still individuals who firmly believe in Hennessy's innocence regarding the crimes he was accused of. Whether or not you align with this belief is personal judgment. In light of such a tragic loss, our heartfelt wish is that Gary and Jana Eastburn, who endured the profound pain of losing their family, have been able to discover even a small degree of solace and inner peace. 
We recognize that finding true peace in the face of such a devastating event is complex and a deeply personal journey. Yet, it is a sobering realization that even if Hennis is innocent, true justice may never fully be served. Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me in this episode as we file away another true crime case. If you like our podcast, please review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can follow us on social media. We're active on Twitter, for now, truecrime underscore cases, on threads at LaneyHobbsVO, Facebook at facebook.com slash truecrimecaseswlaney, and Instagram at truecrimecaseswithlaney. Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com, and we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. Send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com, if you'd like to reach out. This episode was researched, written, and edited by Jesse Hawk, with content editing by Lainey Hobbs. Audio engineering provided by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check them out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com.